Once the scale of Israel's response to the Hamas massacres of October 7th became apparent, it was never likely that what happened in Gaza would stay in Gaza. The four months since have also seen sporadic fighting between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon, a campaign of harassment of Red Sea shipping by Houthi militias in Yemen, answered by American-led airstrikes, and dozens of attacks on American bases in Iraq, Syria and Jordan by various Islamist militias. Earlier this week, a drone strike on a U.S. military facility in Jordan, near the borders with Iraq and Syria, killed three American soldiers and injured dozens more. It is generally believed that if any thread links these incidents, it is some kind of chain of command which ends in Tehran. Hezbollah, the Houthis, and many Iraqi and Syrian militias are all known to be Iranian proxies to some extent or another. Certainly, this was the assumption upon which the United States was proceeding on Friday night when it struck at least 85 targets in Iraq and Syria, the beginning, the US promised, of a wider campaign. Whether the American air raids have the desired effect of deterring further attacks or not, they will make many already anxious Middle Eastern countries even more so. How great is the danger of the present conflict between Israel and Hamas spreading uncontrollably? Even if it doesn't, can the Middle East's more rickety governments contain the aftershocks? And what does Iran think it is doing? This is The Foreign Desk. U.S. and Iran are finding themselves in a very difficult place. U.S. still wants to intimidate Iran to get its minions, Houthis, Hezbollah, etc., to back off. And Iran and those minions, for their own reasons, believe that unless they show their fangs right now, they would be basically sitting ducks for the United States and Israel down the road. But the United States cannot afford the larger war, not in an election year. And the Iranians can't afford the larger war with the United States. The Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty has always been defined as a cold peace, but it is at this point frozen. But this is one way that it impacts Jordan. We've seen protesters not only protesting in front of the Israeli embassy, condemning Israel's war in Gaza, but also so much anger being projected at the United States. There is still interest from both sides, both the Biden administration and the Iraqi government, to move towards a normal bilateral relationship. But each side needs to construct the theater of this withdrawal very carefully so it doesn't look like any side is in a position of weakness. And so these rockets being launched really complicates a theater that both sides is still trying to develop. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me first of all from Paris is Vali Nasser, former senior U.S. State Department policy advisor and professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins University. Vali, let's start with the big question, which is that when we look at this recent pattern of attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, attacks on U.S. bases across the Middle East, is it safe to assume that Iran is behind most, if not all, of these? I think it's safe to say that Iran is a big participant and has provided, obviously, the capability to all of these groups. Uh, there are some times when they are much more uh, directing these activities. 
But these groups themselves also have a vested interest. And there's a case of the tail wagging the dog as well. For instance, once Israel went into Gaza after the attacks of October 7th, and it basically made it very clear that it's not going to be happy with just securing Gaza. It also wants to secure Lebanon. Uh, the stakes for Hezbollah is much bigger than it is for Iran. And whether or not Hezbollah launches missiles at Israel right now is not just something that they would do at, at Iran's behest. It's also they're trying to establish their own deterrence, warning to Israel. And now they have a stake in the outcome of the Gaza war, because if Israel had, had rolled over Hamas too easily, then uh, it would have made it much easier for it to go to Lebanon. And when Israel assassinated a Hamas leader in Beirut, that's when the Houthis actually escalated because the assumption was that Israel was getting ready for a much more bigger direct attack on Hezbollah. And the Houthis basically went to battle on Red Sea to put pressure on the United States so that the United States would pressure on Israel not to escalate the war. These groups that are sitting on around Israel they're not Iranians, they are local people, they have their own local political agendas, and they have a lot that is riding on what sort of Israel comes out of the Gaza war and what would be Israel's ambitions after that. But how clear has it ever been, not just since October, but over the last decades, how direct the chain of command from Tehran is to its proxies, whether that is Hezbollah or the Houthis or the various militias they've had running around Syria and Iraq this last decade or so? I think it varies. It's not one size fits all. So when they were fighting against Assad with Hezbollah fighters in Syria, the command and control was much more direct. It was an operational theater of battle. Or when they were fighting ISIS in Iraq, at that time, the Revolutionary Guard Commander General Soleimani, who was later on killed in 2020, went to Iraq literally to run battles on the ground against ISIS. So there are circumstances when basically you have like one unit, but there are times that there's tremendous amount of local independence. For instance, we now know three months onwards that Iran gave a lot of capability, financial support, intelligence, military support to Hamas, but it was not involved in the decision to actually attack at that point in time. So we know we use the term Iran backed a little too loosely, and the danger of it is that we might come to the conclusion that this is much more of a tight-knit military unit or military operation than it is. It's, it's much more of an alliance of groups that have been bred by Iran, but now they are their own reality. And they are operating in this scenario because they have a convergence of interests as they stand against the United States and Israel. But is that all the interest is? When you look at this pattern of Iran's behavior and its establishment of proxy militias, proxy parties, is there something they're actually trying to accomplish? Is there any sort of project here or is annoying the United States and Israel an end in itself as Tehran sees it? Iran sees the United States and Israel as its enemies. And therefore, it is using these proxies in order to protect itself. For instance, Hezbollah from the outset for Iran was basically a missile system sitting on Israel's borders. And if it was not for Hezbollah and the fact that Israel doesn't want to get bloody on its own borders with Hezbollah, that it would be attacking Iran much more liberally. Or Iran really created the Shia militias 
when it believed that if the United States stayed in Iraq or felt that it was successful in Iraq, then it would turn its attention against Iran. And if you're sitting in Iran, you would say that these militias are essentially an extension of Iran's defense, deterrence, military capabilities. Iran doesn't have an air force, but what Iran has found that there's a way to basically project power uh, using these proxies, and therefore there is strategic value, if you would, for Iran. This is not just expansionism. How much of this endeavor do you think is entirely understood by Iran's people? And and if they did understand it fully, do you think it would be broadly popular with the Iranian public? Not necessarily. I think they used to understand it a lot more before when the United States invaded Iraq, when there was an Iran-Iraq war. I mean, the Iranians looked at the way the U.S. decided that it wants to dismantle the Saddam regime and came up with a pretext that it has nuclear capability. And it didn't just dismantle a dictatorial regime. It pulverized the country. And the Iranians may have decided that, yes, we don't like our rulers, but we don't want the country to basically turn into what Iraq did. But since 2003, I think the popular support basically has gone down because they understand that Iran needs this kind of activity because it's postured against the United States. So there's a growing chorus that says, well, fix the core problem. Why can't you get along with the United States so that you don't need this? But as we've seen with Russia, as we've seen with China, it is political leaders that make these strategic decisions. And if they're not democratic, if the population is not buying it, they just force it down their throat. So did, did Putin actually ask Russian people if they wanted to go to war? No. I mean, he assumed that he could rally them around the flag in the name of uh, Mother Russia. But average Russians you know, can be fed propaganda, but they're not asked whether they believe that this was the right course for Russia. And they end up paying the price for it. Vali Nasser, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, for a look at the wider regional ramifications of what has happened and what may happen in the Middle East. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Marissa Kermer, Programme Director of the Wilson Center's Middle East Programme. Marissa formerly served as the Director of the Office of Jordan's Prince Ali bin al-Hussein. She's joined by Dr. Renard Mansour, Senior Research Fellow and Project Director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House here in London. Renard, let's begin with this statement we heard earlier this this week from Kataib Hezbollah, a militia at large somewhere in Iraq. They rather grandiosely announced that they were suspending operations against the United States, a statement they may well have dictated from beneath a desk somewhere. Is it clear who Kataib Hezbollah actually are? Well, Kataib Hezbollah is designed to be a vanguard network. So it's not like many of the other armed groups that we see in the region. It doesn't sort of participate in politics. It doesn't have a social base. It doesn't control a specific territory. It's very much this transnational vanguard network, which serves a very important purpose. And that is to try and connect across the region, not just the interest of Iran, but the interest of sort of ideologically like-minded groups from Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. So that's the way that I would describe Kitab Hezbollah, very much a ideologically sort of viewing these borders as not really powerful, operating across these borders for its own interest, but also often in alliance with Iran and Hezbollah 
Hezbollah in Lebanon and the other groups that are known under this axis of resistance that has come out to be the front line of the fight against uh, Israel and the U.S.? Marissa, they find themselves in the headlines and very possibly in the United States crosshairs because of this attack on Tower 22, this US base just inside Jordan's borders with Syria and Iraq. Does this statement from them strike you as a tacit admission that it was in fact their drone that struck Tower 22? Well, they haven't taken full responsibility for the attack. That may be the case. But of course, this was a significant escalation, not only because U.S. military personnel were killed, but because this also targeted Tower 22, as you mentioned, Andrew, a military installation in northeast Jordan on the border with Syria. And Jordan continues to be a key ally and partner of the United States particularly in counterterrorism operations since 9-11, but particularly also vis-a-vis ISIL, ISIS, or all the other groups that have emerged. Jordan has also been dealing with pro-Iranian militias on its border with Syria. We've seen an uptick in some of these cross-border clashes guised under basically drug smuggling, weapon smuggling, but they foiled a number of attempts mid-December just last year, and one uh, Jordanian soldier was killed in some of these exchanges. So this is sort of a continuation of targeting Jordan, knowing very well the pressures that Jordan faces with this current war in Gaza. The wider thing we wanted to bring out in this episode was, of course, the way that the war in Gaza is having these ripple effects which are spreading right across the Middle East and the degree to which they are destabilising or may destabilise other countries in the region. I do want to come back to Jordan, Marissa, because Jordan has been a very, very interesting one in all sorts of respects. But to start with Iraq, Renard, or to return to Iraq, it struck me this week that they're still trying to stick to things as scheduled. So we saw Iraq and the United States beginning talks this week on winding down that American troop presence, which has been there since the war against Islamic State. There's about two and a half thousand American troops, I think, still in Iraq. Does that strike you, Renard, as a conversation that they should still be having? Are we not being reminded that whether Iraq likes it or wants it or resents it or not, they do still kind of need some kind of American presence there? Well, before October 7th, there was already a joint cooperation dialogue underway where the Biden administration and the Sudani government of Baghdad were both ready for what they called normalizing the relationship, moving away from this type of having a troop presence, moving more towards bilateral relations. October 7th sort of created an impediment to that particularly from the side of the Biden administration, which doesn't want to be seen as withdrawing from a position of weakness with sort of their nightmares of Afghanistan and leaving Iraq at a time when there are missiles and and rockets being launched at American interests and Americans. That's where we're stuck here. There is still interest from both sides, both the Biden administration and the Iraqi government, to move towards a normal bilateral relationship. But each side needs to construct the theater of this withdrawal very carefully so it doesn't look like any side is in a position of weakness. And so these rockets being sort of launched, and especially three American service people killed, really complicates a theater that both sides is still trying to develop.
Because there's an interesting contrast, Marissa, it strikes me, in Iraq's attitude to the American military presence and Jordan's attitude to its own military presence. I grant that the histories of those two relationships are extremely different. But how worried will Jordan be now? Because Jordan's whole thing, obviously, has been that it is this oasis of relative stability. Will Jordan be concerned right now that that stability may be threatened? I think the government is very concerned about the situation in general. Well, first of all, the war in Gaza, particularly with the largest Palestinian refugee population in Jordan, many people lost friends, families, but also the rise in uh, settler violence in the West Bank and how that also impacts Jordan. The Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty has always been defined as a cold peace, but it is at this point frozen. The only pillar of that treaty that remains solid is the security cooperation, and that is a very good thing, uh, given the instability that we see around. But this is one way that it impacts Jordan. We've seen protesters not only protesting in front of the Israeli embassy, condemning Israel's war in Gaza, but also so much anger being projected at the United States and a reminder that Jordan is not only a key ally and partner to the United States, but also receives significant economic and military assistance from the United States. So it's dependent on U.S. donor assistance. And so when other borders become also challenging, particularly the border with Syria, with the drug trade, as I mentioned earlier, that has been ongoing for some time, but we've seen an uptick since October 7th, and now basically also the border with Iraq, with pro-Iranian militia also threatening to destabilize. So it has to deal with multiple threats, but the government has to also focus on resolving the issue um, in Gaza, and that's why its diplomatic efforts have been laser-focused, calling on uh, a ceasefire in Gaza, the return of the hostages, and returning to a path that leads both Israelis and Palestinians to a two-state solution, precisely because Jordan is in the middle of all of it. Renard, are we seeing equivalent anger with the United States about Gaza among the people in Iraq? Because obviously the people of Iraq right now have a great deal to choose from when it comes to thinking who can we be angry with, because they they would doubtless feel that they have reason to be angry with the United States for its support for Israel, but also as a consequence of that, various sites in Iraq have been attacked in recent weeks by militias and by Iran, presumably directly. Well, I think Iraqis, like most Arabs in the region, disillusioned and disgusted by the scenes that they see on social media and what's happening in Gaza and Palestine. There is this solidarity, definitely. And at the same time, however, they also look at their governments looking to instrumentalize the cause, right? So these leaders in Baghdad who have waning legitimacy, who the people don't feel represent them, are trying to use this cause. But nonetheless, I think this is almost for Iraq's, many of Iraq's leaders, seen as a nuisance of an issue. Because right now, you know, even we're talking about these armed groups that are linked to Kitab Hezbollah and others, the popular mobilization forces, they're in the government of Baghdad right now. The status quo is very much going towards their trajectory that they want. And this is risking destabilizing what they have sort of spent so many years trying to capture. And therefore, 
it's a very difficult balance that they're trying to sort of mold, which is to project force to show that they are fighting for the Palestinians and also fighting against the Americans, but also to maintain the status quo. And that includes, by the way, even when we talk about normalizing relations with the U.S., neither them nor Iran wants Iraq to turn into a sanctioned pariah state. Iraq is a powerful economic tool and actor for many of these groups across the region. So it's that balance between status quo and sort of the regional upheaval that post-October 7th Middle East is moving towards. Marissa. Yeah, I wanted to add one element to this. We're talking about an economic and social context that has had tremendous challenges, particularly for Jordan. Uh, so economic growth has been sluggish for many years. Post-pandemic, I think in 2023, the World Bank noted that Jordan's youth unemployment had hit 45%. And that is a very disconcerting figure because we don't see the war, of course, doing anything to help any of the economic reforms underway. And if anything, it's going to impact Jordan even more so economically, particularly the tourism sector. But when we zoom into this context, this is where the fear of radicalization becomes real, because you have unemployment really high. There's so much grief and so much anger. And that is one formula that the government has to grapple with as well as the leadership. And so this is something that only adds more pressure on the government. And it's something that key allies to Jordan, uh, not only the United States, but also in Europe, should factor in. Renard, you were talking about the near crisis of legitimacy that's been perpetually suffered by all post-war Iraqi governments. There's a relatively new prime minister in Iraq in the shape of Mohammad Shia al-Sudani, but what there isn't in Iraq's government right now is, of course, the figure of Moqtada al-Sadr, who effectively won the last couple of Iraqi elections and then announced he had given up on politics rather abruptly. Is there any concern, Renard, in Iraq that a character like al-Sadr might scrutinise the wider Middle Eastern picture right now and think, well, actually, maybe this is my moment? Well, at the moment, there is a veneer of stability in Iraq hedged primarily because the price of oil is high. You have a lot of development, you have buildings being constructed across the country, but we know that the roots of today's stability, like we've seen multiple times in the last 20 years, are not founded on solid sort of on a solid base, but have rotten foundations. And part of that is answering your question. Muqtada al-Sadr commands a big social base and fundamentally, he doesn't know how to address what is the biggest problem for Iraq's trajectory moving forward, which is the demographics. Iraq has one of the highest birth rates in the region. Over two thirds are under the age of 25 and a rentier government. And what I mean by that is a government where, you know, 90 percent of income is coming from oil and everyone expects jobs from the state, from the government is not able to continue as is. So Iraq is facing at some point a crash. And no Iraqi leader, Muqtada or other, knows what to do about it. There isn't any kind of thinking about what to do. What someone like, you know, Muqtada Sadr is doing is trying to position himself in a way as opposition, but he still has interest in the state. He's still very much in the elite bargain post-2003, but he is waiting for an opportunity to come out. But as long as the oil price is high, 
that opportunity hasn't presented itself yet because the Sudani government is saying we're building, we're building. But we know that this can't last for a while. Marissa, one of the many differences between Iraq and Jordan is that Jordan has always had this pillar of stability, i.e. the Jordanian monarchy, which Iraq has not had since Faisal II was overthrown in 1958. But does that necessarily insulate Jordan from those same forces that Renard was describing in Iraq? Well, there are other types of challenges that can emerge and have emerged to challenge the government, not so much the Hashemite leadership. I think this is a red line that everybody understands. But some of the elements that Renad talked about are very much alive in Jordan too. The opposition is primarily led by the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamic Action Front, which is the political arm of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. They do not have a, a military wing because they cannot operate on that level in Jordan. And that's definitely a plus. However, particularly when there are um, when there's a war raging in the Palestinian territories, they have ample support and they have been at the forefront of organizing many of these demonstrations. But again, when push comes to shove and if there is some sort of economic collapse or crash akin to what Renad described, the opposition has absolutely no clue what to do to address these issues. And so it's a lot of talk and it's a lot of exploitation of the cause of the day. And the Palestinian cause, unfortunately, has always given a lot of power to a lot of these groups. That's not to say that it's not a just cause and that it does not impact people's lives because it does. But unfortunately, it's also weaponized by a lot of these opposition groups. There's tremendous pressure on the government in Jordan to annul the peace treaty with Israel. So they've taken multiple steps by recalling the ambassador, for example, by freezing the peace for prosperity deal that was essential for Jordan, given the water scarcity in the country and the challenges that the country will face in the next decades when it comes to water. Uh, so those measures were taken short, of course, of annulling the peace treaty, because that would be the last resort. But it's not an option for the government anytime soon, particularly when the focus for the leadership and the government has been to return to the two-state solution as the end goal and ending Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. Just finally, Renard, going back to where we came in with Kataib Hezbollah, a presumably Iran-encouraged militia operating in Iraq, between them and others like them, and between Iran's serial meddling all over the Middle East in the last few years, do you see any prospect at all that the Arab nations of the Middle East might at any point turn around in the opposite direction and start worrying less about Israel and more about Iran? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a difficult question. Certainly, the Gulf countries have, have, have seen Iran as an antagonistic ways. Jordan, as well, has been on the front line of looking at Iran in this way. But if you look at the governments of countries like Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, they very much view Iran as an ally. They view Iran as an alternative to the U.S., which cannot be trusted so I guess there are these are incoherent states. These are states where there isn't a strong government or a strong movements. The people of these countries, certainly the youth and the young and the protesters are coming out against Iran and are not happy 
that Iran is so powerful. Iran is almost seen as an occupying force in some of these countries. So there is certainly grassroots and civil society movements against Iran. But the leaders of these countries understand that within the weak states that they're operating, where power is so diffuse, Iran is an important ally for their own purposes. So this is why even the word proxy becomes a bit complicated because they can make use of Iran as much as Iran is making use of them. And it is that type of alliance that allows them to maintain some power, whether it's in the government of Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or with the Houthis in, in Yemen. Marisa Kerma and Renard Mansour, thank you both very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. It was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. We are also excited to announce that the Foreign Desk team will be attending the upcoming Munich Security Conference later this month. Monocle will be hosting a cocktail event on the 15th of February for our valued listeners and subscribers in Munich or visiting Munich. If you'd like to join us, please contact Emma at es at monocle.com for further information. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.